Hi, this is Dr. Eric Dein coming at you with Room Now faculty at ULAR conference day one. It was an excellent first day at the conference. Uh, I'm going to start by talking about oral presentation 0010. And this was um, a, a DeFlora trial looking at fecal transplantation as a potential therapeutic option for psoriatic arthritis. So what this comes off of is the um, you know, prior literature and thoughts about the, the gut joint relationship in psoriatic arthritis and spondyloarthritis diseases. The thought being a, a microbiome dysbiosis can contribute to subclinical gut inflammation, which correlates with joint inflammation, possibly through um, translocation of bacterial pro products that create a molecular mimicry that leads to peripheral joint inflammation. So the fluorid trial was looking at fecal transplantation as an add-on therapy for psoriatic arthritis. The patients included had active peripheral um, psoriatic arthritis. They were treated with staple doses of methotrexate uh, at the maximal tolerated dose, 15 to 25 milligrams, um, <clears throat> for at least three months. They were then given the addition of a fecal transplantation or a sham transplantation. And the study was looking at a primary endpoint of the proportion with treatment failure, which meant the need for drug escalation through 26 weeks. It also looked at a variety of activity scores as a secondary measure. So the eligible patients all met the CASPAR criteria. They had at least three swollen peripheral joints. And as I said, on the steady state of methotrexate monotherapy, um, all aged between 18 and 75 years old by inclusion criteria. They excluded patients with other causes of inflammatory arthritis, cancer infections. Uh, they notably excluded patients with inflammatory bowel disease, as well as patients with food allergies, food intolerances, or celiac disease. The results were interesting. It showed that the sham trial, the sham transplantation was superior to the fecal transplantation. So this was a negative trial, actually, more than negative with sham being better. So the um, there were nine treatment failures in the treatment group, nine out of 15 patients with only three out of 16 in the sham group. So there was a significant benefit to being in the sham group with a p-value of under um, 0.02. The HAC-DI score was also improved in the placebo group and not in the uh, fecal transplantation, again, with significance. What was reassuring is the safety data was encouraging. There's no serious adverse events in either groups. The total um, non-serious adverse events were pretty similar between the two groups and actually showing more infections in the sham group uh, with only three out of the nine infections in the fecal transplant group. So I, I do think um, kudos to ULAR for, for talking about a, a trial that was negative and, and having this as part of the plenary sessions, because I think we often focus on the, the bias of positive findings. I think it's a very interesting idea. I think it would have been a nice proof of concept to see a response. Uh, <clears throat> the clinical significance of it, I think, would, would require more thought as to um, this procedure. But I, I think it is interesting to think about uh, the concept of the gut joint relationship. The obvious, the obvious limitation was this was a pilot study with a very small study population of 31 patients. Um, there was significant improvement in the sham group, which was interesting and not expected. Um, so I think that requires further thought, and especially in such a small group. They had just one fecal transplantation, which the thought being maybe on repeat um, transplantations may change the efficacy of it. Um, again, I think this is a very interesting idea. It, it proposes further thought, discussion. It's a shame it didn't show positive 
findings, but I think there is more that can be done to look at the microbiome more directly um, and see what responses may happen after fecal transplantation and see if we could correlate that to launch, I would hope, a bigger study to look into this um, a little bit more. Thank you very much. I look forward to continuing to uh, check in throughout ULAR and for more information for me and my colleagues, take a look at rubenow.com. Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. I'm at ULAR 2021, and it's actually a great meeting. Um, it opened up with this really great debate about how can you measure uh, to, to success, actually, and treat to target for lupus. Should you go ahead and consider remission or low disease activity state as your target for treating lupus? So it opened up with Professor Ronald von Bollenhoven, and he shared the definition of remission in lupus, the Doris Project, which was started in 2016. And you may not know this, but they've been meeting for five years straight and they were reviewing a lot of the data. So there's 60 individuals who came together and that includes patient representatives, it included specialists like rheumatologists, nephrologists, clinical immunologists, and dermatologists. And so what they did was they did a systematic literature review and then they looked at individual studies. And they came up with recommendations for the definition of remission. So basically they said, all right, you shouldn't have any clinical disease activity as measured by the clinical SLE day, all right? And then not only that, the physician global should be under 0.5 on a scale of zero to three. And then they were wondering whether or not serology should be included. So the double strand DNA, the complement levels, well, in the end, they said that really measuring those would be unhelpful in the definition of remission. Because as you know, not all patients will have a positive double strand DNA and you can't necessarily track complements. And the other thing that the Professor Van Vollenhoven acknowledges is that, you know, there's a lot of different Slee Day tools out there. Um, there's the Selena Slee Day, there's the Slee Day 2K, there's the Max, um, Max Slee Day. But really the type of SLE day that you choose doesn't really matter that much when it comes to the definition of remission. The other recommendations that the committee came up with was that you know, remission can occur at any point and it can occur for any duration of time that you set. So you can say, well, my goal for treating you to remission could be six months or my goal for you to be in remission for at least a year. You can tell the patient that. I mean, ultimately, yes, the goal of remission would be sustained remission for a really long time. But sometimes we know that patients can flare. Um, there were reports where you know, about 30% of patients can have moderate to severe lupus flares within the first year of diagnosis. Um, renal disease can relapse in up to 50% of patients. And then the final thing that um, Professor von Vollenhoven acknowledges is that you can have remission on medications. I mean, yes, it's ideal for patients. They would want to get off of medications and still be in remission, but sometimes that's not possible. So if you can keep your prednisone five milligrams or below and on stable therapy, then he would consider that remission. Now on the flip side, Professor Eric Moran came back 
and say, remission is such a stringent thing to achieve. I mean, it's almost nearly impossible. It's very rare for patients to be able to get to a SLE day of zero. I mean, think about it. You got alopecia that counts for a point. You have oral ulcers that can come and go, malar rash. So, so how can you achieve a SLE day of zero? So he says that it's actually more practical for patients to try and reach the target of lupus low disease activity state. So LLDAS, okay, the LLDAS score. And so he skillfully displayed evidence in favoring of choosing LLDAS. Um, he said that really LLDAS is where you're in a state that if sustained is associated with low likelihood of adverse outcome, considering disease activity and medication safety in this. So this is very interesting, the fact that he used the term medication safety, because yes, I mean, you can achieve low disease activity state, but if you throw in like high dose cyclophosphamide or high dose steroids, really, is that really achieving low disease activity state if you accrued a lot of damage from the medications itself? Well, the consensus in 2019, and this was published of LLD, of LLDAS for is that the final definition says that LLDAS is where the SLE day 2K is under four with no activity in major organ systems. So this includes the kidneys, the CNS, cardiopulmonary system, or evidence of vasculitis or fever. In addition, there should be no new features of lupus disease activity compared to prior assessments. And the Selena SLE day physician global should be under one. I'm sorry, it was the physician global should be under one. So that's on the score and scale of zero to three. And the prednisone dose here, he really emphasized, should be under seven and a half milligrams a day, at or below seven and a half milligrams a day. And patients can be maintained on standard maintenance therapy. So and how he stated this is that the LLDAS um, was validated by Michelle Petrie in the lupus cohort at Hopkins. And they found that if patients were in LLDAS 50% of the time, they have 50% reduction in damage accrual. Now there's also other studies that shows that LLDAS is associated with better health-related quality of life, reduction in healthcare, as well as reduction in mortality. So it, it's a much more realistic goal. Now there's also a dose-dependent protection. So maybe you can't get the patients in 50% LLDAS um, but you might be able to get them in 20% of times. Well, that also matters as well. So that also decreases damage accrual. Now, one thing that Dr. Moran noted is that African-American patients and patients who have lupus nephritis may have a more difficult time attaining LLDAS. And we need to be more vigilant, monitor these patients carefully, and be a little bit more aggressive in trying to get them to LLDAS. And so what kind of disease measures uh, will you choose? How would you treat to target? Are you gonna choose remission? Are you gonna choose LLDAS? Well, for me, it's clear. I want to use probably LLDAS um, because number one, I think that the patients, even if they have a little bit of low disease activity, you're not compounding so many therapeutics on them. So you, you won't risk like a lot of side effects. Um, remission always will be the goal, and I would love it if all my patients are in remission, but I think it's okay to tell patients low disease activity is fine too. So this is Dr. Kathleen Dow reporting for Room Now.
Hi, from Northern Virginia. Uh, I'm Dr. Robert Chow, reporting for a room now from ELAR 2021. Um, today, I'd like to share an oral presentation, uh, 6885, by a Dr. Philip Vandebosch from Ghent, Belgium, on how to treat spondylarthritis and his strategies towards early and long-term remission. I think the first question that he poses is one that we in our day-to-day -day practice uh, in treating patients with spondylarthritis is how do you define remission in such a heterogeneous disease? I agree with his belief that the clinical concept of this disease spans beyond axial and peripheral disease. We also need to focus on other disease factors that we're aware of, such as enthesitis, dactylitis, inflammatory bowel disease, psoriasis, and uveitis. Uh, just quickly shifting gears to uh, dermatology for a second. Uh, I think we have a few things fancy offices and fancy cars. Um, dermatologists continue to have major advancements in the treatment of psoriasis. Uh, their psoriasis activity measures continue to be more and more stringent, and their therapies are striving and achieving past 100 compared to PASI 5 and, and, and PASI 50 just a few years ago. So where does rheumatology stand? And uh, did we improve as well? Um, not as much. Uh, you know, our, our big therapies for psoriatic arthritis, TNF inhibitors, IL-17 inhibitors, jack nibs, uh, they're still using ASAS-40 uh, with roughly 40 to 50% of those biologics responding in terms of ASAS-40. So some of the strategies that Dr. Uh, Vandebosch uh, discussed on the treatment of uh, spondyloarthritis are uh, one, directly uh, using an old drug. So, you know, newer is not always better. Uh, there's some pretty good data in, uh, including uh, ASAS partial remission with NSAIDs, uh, showing a good majority of patients with good or excellent response in terms of treatment. Um, the other strategy is go ahead and use the fancy new drugs. Uh, we know that between 25 to 33% of patients taking TNF inhibitors or IL-17 inhibitors or jacinibs and psoriatic arthritis will reach uh, minimal disease activity. There are some interesting head-to-head -head studies as well, including TNF uh, inhibitors versus IL-17 inhibitors. Um, they both do pretty well. Uh, we do see that IL-17 does do a little bit better and that's possibly due to its uh, uh, better skin response. And focusing on emphasitis specifically, uh, in studies, 17 inhibitor secukitumab did better than placebo, but placebo also did pretty well in terms of resolution of enthesitis. We're also seeing similar patterns in terms of IL-23 inhibitors and jacinibs. So one could question, you know, what would be the same strategy for situs? And you could say simply wait for a placebo to take effect. Um, one of the other strategies that Dr. Vandenbosch poses is uh, treat the target in tight control. Uh, and one of the studies he focuses on is the COPE, is the, the COPE study, which is uh, focusing on tight control group, which is better than the standard of care group. But this comes at a price, which is typically the tight control group uh, had more biologic use, and we know the risks and benefits of, of that. Another approach is the DEER treatment approach. And DEER stands for dedicated, empathic, and educated rheumatologist. We have to take into account the consideration and factors contributing to overall disease status. 
uh, understand that depression and anxiety are, are huge players in terms of disease management. We have studies that show depression and anxiety may reduce the likelihood of joint remission in rheumatoid and psoriatic arthritis patients. We also know that the depression should be managed and identified in axial spondyloarthritis patients. Another, another study shows that depression, anxiety, and fibromyalgia tended to cluster together to have poor health and increased axial spondyloarthritis symptoms. And again, another study focused on modifiable factors, such as, again, mental health, uh, which predicted a non-response to TNF inhibitors uh, in axial spondyloarthritis patients. And keep in mind, there's also some non-modifiable factors, such as social and economic factors, that should be taken into account as well. And one of the last strategies is a remission induction approach, focusing really on the CRESPA study and the Ixkizumab withdrawal study. CRESPA study shows us that uh, TNF inhibitor induced remission uh, was achieved in about 82% of very early peripheral spinal arthritis patients. And out of the patients who achieved clinical remission, uh, 57 of them, 57% of them achieved drug-free remission. However, 43% of them did relapse. The schizomab withdrawal study showed that after achieving minimal disease activity, uh, half the schizomab uh, were then uh, receiving placebo and the other stayed on schizomab. Um, however, out of the 85% who withdrew treatment, about 96% of them, um, or 85% declared with 96% of, of them eventually reachieving minimal disease activity after a month. We also see similar studies in axial spinal arthritis patients, which begs us to ask, you know, perhaps is tapering a much better strategy than discontinuing? So I think the takeaways from this talk and from this, uh, from spinal arthritis is uh, that we need to keep in mind that there is a wide array of disease uh, factors in spinal arthritis. We still have a lot of room for improvement in our treatment of arthritis. And we have to factor in uh, modifiable and non-modifiable uh, factors when considering treatment options or treatment response in our treatment of spondyloarthritis. So thanks for joining us today and uh, reporting live from 2021 for Room Now. This is again, Dr. Robert Chow and feel free to, uh, to follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks. Good day from West Palm Beach, Florida. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate reporting for RoomNow.com for ULAR 2021. We can all agree that patient reported outcomes are important, but we differ in our ability to use them in a clinically relevant manner. So today I'm going to highlight two abstracts for you. The first is abstract zero, or pardon me, OP0051. McGuire et al. evaluated differences in male and female AXPA patients and their patient reported outcomes using the Ankylosing Spondylitis Registry of Ireland, or RC. So the team actually looked at individual BASDI scores and their components to see why female AXPA patients reported worsening outcomes and worsening scores compared to their male counterparts. Well, comparison of baseline characteristics and mean BASME, BASB, PAC, and ASQOL scores were all evaluated in a total of about 857 patients, 75% of whom were male, something to consider, 
But the investigators found that female ACSPA patients actually reported worse patient report outcomes, but they tended to have better spinal mobility than their male ACSPA counterparts. Additionally, disease activity patterns were similar in four out of the six components for the VASDI, regardless of gender. In general, though, females reported increased fatigue, while males tended to report increased spinal pain. So these are some differences that we may want to keep in mind when evaluating our patients in, in clinic for potential ACSPA. So what about the Corona Registry, which has been renamed Core Evitas? This data was from abstract OP0049, which looked at 1,044 patients, 470 of whom had axial PSA, and 550, pardon me, 574 had axial SPA. So they compared baseline characteristics and patient reported outcomes in these subsets as well. So we found that axial PSA patients tended to be older, they tended to be female, and their symptom onset prior to diagnosis was 6.8 years, con conversely compared to the 8.3 years from symptom onset to diagnosis in the AXPA patients. So the AXPA PSA, pardon me, the AXPSA patients were also less likely to have IBD or uveitis. So patient reported pain and spinal scores in this particular study were found to be lower in axial PSA patients, but they tended to have increased dactylitis and enthesitis scores. So axial PSA patients were also more likely to have tried a, a DMARD or a biologic DMARD compared to the AXPA patients. And overall morning stiffness along with mean fatigue and work impairment scores tended to be similar between both groups, the axial PSA patients and the axial SPA patients. So this is observational, but both of these abstracts do tend to highlight that the importance of patient reported outcomes should not be lost on us as clinicians. We clearly need more information about their relevance, however. Oftentimes when I talk to patients about patient reported outcomes, I like to define it as that we, the physicians, we have a language barrier when it comes to understanding and thus improving the patient's experience and their quality of life. So hopefully patient re reported outcomes will provide us future clues for our difficult to diagnose and thus treat patients. So for more from ULAR 2021, check out roomnow.com. And of course, follow me on Twitter at UpToTate. Hello, uh, I'm Dr. Yus Yusuf uh, from uh, Leeds, UK, uh, reporting for Room Now uh, for this year's uh, EULA 2021 uh, Congress. Uh, today, uh, I'm delighted uh, to be joined by Dr. George Robinson, um, who uh, just presented uh, his uh, work uh, as an oral presentation uh, in the opening uh, uh, plenary uh, session. Um, so his uh, abstract um, uh, number is uh, OP0013, uh, and the title of uh, presentation is uh, Sex Differences in Autoimmune Disease Susceptibility, uh, a Multi-Omic uh, Approach. Um, uh, hi, George. Hi there. Um, so first and foremost, uh, before we uh, dwell into your abstract, uh, we're here in the uh, room now. I uh, would like to uh, congratulate you uh, on your best uh, abstract award at this year's uh, Congress. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, so can you please uh, provide 
uh, a short background uh, and also the objective uh, of your study. Sure, no problem. Um, so the idea behind the project is due to the fact that there's such a heavy female predominance across all autoimmune diseases. Uh, our particular focus in the lab is on uh, systemic lupus erythematosus. Um, and we also look at the younger patients, which is where my research is focused in juvenile lupus. Uh, but in both cases, you have a female predominance. But what's also seen in medical research and in real world is that atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease, there's also sex differences there where males are actually at an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. But in autoimmunity, there's an increased risk of atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease where normally females would have a greater protection than males. And so this kind of paradox is something that's interesting. And that was the, the idea behind the research. Okay, um, so can you please uh, so knows, uh, explain uh, briefly your study design and also uh, summarize your key findings? Um, so we went in with a relatively unbiased approach using um, different uh, omic platforms. Uh, so one of which was to look at metabolomics, um, which was heavily focused on lipid metabolism due to the uh, focus on atherosclerosis. And the other thing we looked at was the immune cell profile by flow cytometry, um, looking at 28 immune cell subsets. And so initially by looking at the metabolomics, what we found is that in children, so pre-puberty, there were no differences in lipids at all. Um, but then when um, individuals that are adolescents that hit puberty, they develop um, very different uh, lipid profiles between males and females, where males have a more atherogenic lipoprotein profile, whereas females have a more protected profile, suggesting this is driven by hormones. Um, and to validate this, um, we used um, two cohorts of transgender individuals, so they're undergoing uh, cross-sex hormone treatment. So in the trans males giving testosterone, um, they developed the atherogenic lipoprotein profile, um, whereas on the flip side, the trans females given estrogen, they developed the atheroprotected profile, suggesting the hormones are driving these differences in atherosclerotic risk uh, from the lipid perspective. Um, but what was more striking is that when we looked in JSLE, these differences were completely lost. So this uh, perhaps suggests that the females are losing the atheroprotective profile, which may be why in disease there's an increased atherosclerotic risk, which is obviously a comorbidity and causes um, death in some patients. Um, so it's an important aspect to consider um, sex, specifically in medical research around autoimmunity. And when we looked at the immune cell profile from, a, from another angle, um, because obviously atherosclerosis and autoimmunity are both driven by um, inflammation, uh, what we found is that Tregs uh, were exclusively increased in healthy males compared to females. Um, and they were also more suppressive, which suggests that the males are perhaps have a more inflammatory profile, uh, sorry, a more anti-inflammatory profile. And therefore this may hint towards why females have uh, a predisposition to develop autoimmune diseases. Um, and we also looked at these in the transgender cohorts. And again, we found that there were um, different genes and functional profiles that were driven by hormones. Um, again, suggesting that hormones may be driving the differences in Treg function and also frequency between males and females and, and driving this differential autoimmune susceptibility. And these were also associated with atherosclerosis. And again, in JSLE, we found that these differences were all lost. Um, again, suggesting perhaps a hormone breakdown or something environmental um, that's, that's sex-specific that's causing um, autoimmunity and atherosclerosis. 
That's really interesting, George. Uh, so, uh, in terms of um, you know applicability uh, to clinical practice, so how did this um, you know, findings you know uh, inform or change our practice, and how do we monitor you know our patient with uh, juvenile SLE? Um, so, I think importantly, um, in juvenile lupus, there there's actually a less uh, sex bias than in adults. So, you typically you may see more males in clinic. So, I think it's important that in autoimmune research uh, specifically, but also in general uh, medical treatment. Sex is something to really consider when giving drugs or perhaps looking at disease susceptibility or choosing certain drugs, particularly things like statins, which you may prescribe for atherosclerotic risk or uh, dyslipidemia, which we know is common in autoimmunity. And because we know at baseline, males and females have this difference in lipids. This is definitely something that needs to be considered when, when giving treatments and in general medical research, I think uh, sex needs to be taken into account a lot more. Yeah, that's brilliant, George. Uh, yeah, so thank you uh, for spending your uh, time to be interviewed uh, by, you know, by, by Room Now. Um, so yeah, so tune in uh, to Room Now for more um, updates um, and reports pertaining to the Congress. Um, and you can also follow me uh, on my Twitter handle at uh, U6Yusuf. Uh, thank you again, George. Thank you very much. Uh, hi everyone, uh, my name is uh, Dr. Yus Yusuf uh, from Leeds uh, United Kingdom. I'm reporting for Room Now uh, for this year's EULA 2021 Congress. Uh, I'm delighted uh, to be uh, joined by Dr. Panagiotis Garanziotis, um, who uh, earlier uh, presented uh, his work uh, as an oral presentation. Uh, the abstract number is um, uh, OP0019. Uh, um, uh, hello, Dr. Panagiotis. Hello. Thank you for your invitation. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so uh, would you like to tell me a little bit of uh, your the background of the study and the objectives? Yeah. Um, as you know, I'm a physician. Although, um, I'm a physician with um, strong um, uh, research-oriented uh, educational background. Um, I'm uh, currently, I'm, uh, I'm receiving my internal medicine training at Hanover Medical School since, uh, I've, uh, since I've completed my master thesis at uh, the lab of Professor Dimitris Bubas. I really, I, I, I realized that I was truly interested in a career incorporating substantial research. Uh, that, that being the case, I, I made the decision pursuing a, a research intensive career in um, of the physician scientist. Uh, previously, uh, I was um, I was being hosted as a as a Euler fellow by Sarita Rheumatology Clinic in Berlin, where I gained um, a strong, a solid cross disciplinary um, training in the field of translational medicine and more specific in the field of uh, functional genomics. Uh, currently, uh, as you may have already noticed, I'm, um, I consider um, bioinformatic analysis of uh, large scale data quite challenging. 
uh, currently we, we, we are working with my colleagues um, in, uh, in the field of, in, in developing uh, computational pipelines that may probably facilitate a more thorough certification of patients with autoimmune diseases. Uh, I hope that our research may, 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 may facilitate, may uh, provide a solid uh, basis for, for um, that, that may in turn assist the personalized therapeutic decisions. Yeah, very good. Uh, so thank you so much. Yeah, we definitely need a lot of uh, bioinformatician and also, you know, machine learning. Um, so regarding to your uh, current uh, abstract, uh, would you like to describe uh, what were the objective of the study? You know, yeah, also the major goal of our study, as we said, it was to construct a computational pipeline, a, a translational platform that may allow a more thorough and more specific molecular certification of patients with uh, lupus independently of their clinical annotation. So initially to, to achieve that, we, we applied a co-expression analysis in whole blood transcriptomic data of patients who, of our public available data of uh, patients with lupus. Uh, we recruited uh, 120 patients with lupus. Uh, taking a step forward, we, uh, we used a publicly available uh, drug signatures of uh, compounds that are either currently used in clinical practice or have failed in actually clinical trials. And we tried to, to, to identify compounds that may efficiently counteract reverse the transcriptional signatures of patients with lupus. So initially we, uh, we, we used this molecular specific signatures of patients with lupus and taking a step forward we use this publicly available uh, drug transcriptional data of from um, drug databases in order to identify in order to propose uh, personalized therapeutic solutions taking a step forward we tried to uh, not, not only to identify compounds that are currently used or have failed in actually clinical trials and are and fit to specific molecular endotypes, but we also tried to identify novel compounds um, that FDA approved compounds that may play a role uh, in the, um, the treatment of patients with lupus. As, as you may, uh, our study of course have has certain limitations, uh, but uh, we, we, we are working with my colleagues in order to optimize our uh, Okay, fantastic. So, um, so you're looking, trying to uh, define the molecular phenotypes and also mm -hmm. the response to therapy. Um, yeah. So just uh, in a few words, can you please uh, summarize the key findings of your study? You know, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, as we identify five five molecular endotypes of patients with lupus, and uh, we tried in our study, we we achieved to recapitulate all the pathophysiologic processes that are currently uh, that have been discovered, have been reported in the literature. Uh, so initially, we identified molecular endotypes of patients uh, where. 
um, neutrophilic deregulations plays a central role. Uh, we have identified molecular endotypes that are associated with uh, type 1 and B cell uh, responses. Uh, additionally, another uh, molecular endotypes uh, mainly uh, was associated with processes that were implicated in mRNA splicing and mitochondrial function. And uh, we, we used and taking and in next step we identified we, we found that a bortezomib, a proteasome inhibitor which has uh, has been tested in clinical trials of patients with lupus might be a promising therapeutic option for patients of uh, group four of. Uh, uh, of uh, of the pay of the neurophilic cluster patients. On the other hand, the fostamatinib, uh, a known sick inhibitor, might be uh, also um, a reasonable therapeutic alternative for patients uh, uh, of uh, cluster five, where, as we've said, the type one, the B cell responses were uh, were most prominent, and finally. Uh, probably the, um, uh, the, the uh, and finally we have also identified several compounds, novel compounds that target a tax cell pathway, and we 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 we, we hypothesize that may, those compounds might uh, confer some uh, therapeutic base patient uh, some therapeutic benefit for patients uh, uh, of uh, cluster three. Yeah, yeah. So fantastic. So you identify uh, five, uh, you know, uh, subgroups. So just lastly, uh, in terms of uh, your future work, what what's your plan to, you know, to to yeah. Improve? Yeah. yeah first of all we need to, uh, to to validate our data in an independent validation cohort uh, and additionally we have some uh, uh, some other projects that we aim to use machine learning techniques in order to uh, to develop uh, diagnostic tools not only in lupus but also in children and we 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 aim we, we will try to uh, identify novel molecular biomarkers that uh, may contribute, may play a role in uh, disease monitoring. But my, if, uh, my, yeah, I'm interested, <laughs> quite interested in lupus, uh, but uh, as you, I find also Zyogran quite, quite uh, interesting. Yeah, fantastic, right. So uh, thank you for offering to be interviewed by us at uh, Room Now. So uh, tune in uh, to Room Now for more updates uh, and, uh, and reports uh, throughout the Congress. Uh, so you can follow me as well at my Twitter handle at uh, Yusuf. So thank you again, Dr. Panagiotis, and thank all you. the best. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. -bye. Bye.